This episode is sponsored by Casper. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash serial spoiler and using promo code serial spoiler at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. We're also sponsored by Audible, which has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free 30-day trial at audible.com slash serial spoiler. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Slate's Serial Spoiler Special. I'm Slate Senior Editor Gabriel Roth. Joining me from Washington, D.C. is Slate's Words Correspondent Katie Waldman. Hey, Katie, how's it going? Hey, Gabe, how are you? I'm good. So, big week for Serial, right? Um, If you're joining us for the first time, this is the podcast where Katie and I discuss Season 2 of Serial, episode by episode, going deeper into the show's themes, exploring its characters and situations, looking at the ways in which the podcast reverberates in the world. A little bit later today, we'll be joined by Adrian Bonnenberger, who you might remember from our first episode of this season. Adrian was twice deployed to Afghanistan as an infantry officer in the U.S. Army, and we'll be getting his perspective on the wide range of first-person accounts from soldiers in this week's episode. But first, Katie, how did you feel when you opened your podcasting app this morning? Oh, my God. Um, It was a revelation. It was uh, the return of the repressed, except the unhappily repressed, and now brought to the sunlight, and I was so happy. Um, I hope that doesn't sound like a glib way to talk about something very serious, which is um, the post-conviction hearing of a convicted murderer, Adnan Syed. But, you know, you got the theme music back, the original theme music. You got the phone call announcement. Anyway, yes, I'm going to stop gushing now. Gabe, did you have any reaction to this reappearance in your feed? Well, I should say, if you're one of the super fans who listens to the Slate Serial Spoiler Special podcast before listening to Serial, then you probably don't even know that Serial <laughs> dropped in addition to um, an episode of season two of Serial, uh, the first of a series of daily updates to season one of Serial, in which Sarah Koenig attended a court hearing in Baltimore uh, for Adnan Syed. Um, yes, when I saw that, um, it, it is hard to pretend that that, that story doesn't still have a, a lot of um, juice and energy to it, that that maybe Serial hasn't quite managed to recapture with season two. Um, when it came to listening to it, what did you think? I mean, I was actually struck by how sort of mythic these figures were. Like, I think it was this strange turn of phrase that Sarah Koenig had. She said, Guterres's, the lawyer's powers were waning, uh, was one argument that uh, the defense would marshal to show that Adnan Sayed was convicted unfairly and they didn't have enough evidence and there was a mistrial. And I was thinking like, oh my gosh, this fallen icon. So we've got the great defender whose powers are waning and then you have Asia McLean coming in with her red lipstick and her high heels to save the day and she speaks, you know, simply and idealistically and then there's the wrongly convicted hero. It just seems like very grand and epic. And I was thinking like, gosh, we talked about the story as if it were so small, but they have done a really good job of making it seem sort of camera ready. And I mean, obviously, I sort of went back into serial superfan mode and was thinking, gosh, they're back. What will it be like to have them all in a room together? For me, it was a bit of a reminder that all of this stuff is is unfolding in real time, that this is not, in fact, a movie. It's not a TV show that we got really into and we talked about it the way we talked about, like, Mad Men and now Mad Men is over and we sort of remember fondly that time when we were super into Mad Men, but the characters don't 
actually exist in the world. No, this is a court hearing that took place this week in Baltimore, and there there was a, another day of the hearing today, and, and these people still exist. One of them is in prison, and, and one of them is uh, dead. Christina Gutierrez, who represented Adnan Syed, is dead, but Asia McLean still exists and can walk into a courtroom very put together, as Sarah Koenig puts it, and, and can talk about what she remembers and can be questioned by the prosecution that this is still unfolding in the real world. And um, it it makes you realize how powerfully that first season of Serial functioned as a piece of narrative journalism so effective that it, it became somehow more than real for us. So, Katie, one of the potential outcomes here is, is that if the judge rules for Adnan Syed in this hearing, then um, there could potentially be a new trial. Um, I mean, can you imagine? What a... I've been pretty upfront about where my sympathies fall for season one, and I believe that he deserves a new trial, so I, I would definitely get behind that outcome. And I wonder how much Serial as a team, how comfortable they feel taking credit for um, for some of these results. Like, I, I wonder actually how much Serial had to do with this uh, post-conviction hearing even being approved. Yes. I mean, it's often said that every inmate in the penitentiary um, will tell you that they were wrongly imprisoned or that they were railroaded or that their trial was a farce. Um, and yet most of them don't get post-conviction hearings. Um, mm -hmm. So you got to wonder. Uh, and it's certainly true that, that however bad Christina Gutierrez was as a defense attorney, she certainly wasn't the only incompetent defense attorney who represented anyone, even in Baltimore, even that year. So let's move on to the new episode of season two, uh, which some people may have been less excited about. I know I listened to the update of season one before the episode of season two. But I did also think that this week's installment of season two, which is called Five O'Clock Shadow, uh, it kept me engaged in a way that season two has not reliably done so far. How about you? I would say that this was hands down my favorite episode of season two so far, actually. Um I thought that the insight we got into Bo's character was really compelling, um, especially, I mean, it's almost as if uh, reality did us a favor here. It's like better than fiction, like this notion of the kind of pipe smoking philosopher nerd outsider. The, the picture that we get of Bo is really fascinating. And then there are those sort of elaborate set pieces that are the rescue on the hill in Afghanistan and then the incident of taking off uh, uniforms so that you can dig in the hot sun. Um, there were just two pretty clear plot points or scenes uh, that, you know, are easy to understand, but also seem very significant and very symbolic. I found that as storytelling, uh, this was a very accessible episode. I, I agree. Um, for this discussion, we're going to be bringing back Adrian Bonnenberger. Adrian served two tours in Afghanistan and recently published a memoir called Afghan Post about his experiences. Adrian, thanks for being back with us. Thanks so much for having me back. So how did you feel as you listened to this and, and we got to hear Bo Bergdahl make his case that what had happened to him on the military base in Afghanistan justified and necessitated the sort of extreme actions that he took? What was your response? There was a lot in this episode for me personally because 
I I know the Omna Plateau. I know exactly what that terrain looks like. I've been down that road that he described, uh, that which is an incredibly treacherous road that leads up to and down from the plateau. But it, it wasn't actually until Katie just mentioned the storytelling that I realized that I think that's just because it was a very cleanly told episode. Um, but the veteran community that I'm in touch with has been waiting for this episode, has been waiting for the case to get made a lot more strongly and clearly uh, that there were toxic leaders within Bergdahl's chain of command. Um, I don't know Colonel Baker. I never served with him. Uh, the, the cases it was presented in the episode certainly made it sound like Bergdahl had some kind of at least within his own mind, valid concerns. I did talk to other people from the unit that were not in, uh, not referenced in the episode. They said that Colonel Baker, uh, the battalion commander, was actually something of a coin guru. Coin being counterinsurgency. Exactly. The bread handouts, the rice, uh, the, the things that, depending on what type of a person you were in Afghanistan, either gave you great satisfaction or was a source of frustration. Uh, and he was one of those officers who actually believed that there was uh, some redeeming value in reaching out to the Afghans and giving them things and that that would, for better or for worse, um, it result in, in more engagement. And was this the commander who who made the remark about, oh, what, you guys didn't have time to shave, uh, that, that infuriated Bo Bergdahl? Exactly. And the shaving episode is something that would have been very annoying for soldiers in combat. I witnessed episodes like that. I found them very frustrating. I don't think that is Cassus Belli for walking off of a, a fob, but obviously there was other stuff going on for Bergdahl. Before we move on, a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Casper. Don't go another year sleeping on an uncomfortable mattress. You deserve a good night's sleep, and now it's easy. Casper provides an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. These mattresses have just the right sink and just the right bounce. Two technologies, latex foam and memory foam, come together for better nights and brighter days. Even better is their risk-free trial and return policy. Try sleeping on a Casper for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. These are American-made mattresses that are affordable. $500 for a twin-sized mattress and $950 for a king-sized mattress. Comparing that to industry averages, that's an outstanding price. Don't wait. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash serial spoiler and using promo code serial spoiler at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. Do you think that that uh, shaving comment could fairly be interpreted as um, as evidence that he didn't care about the well-being of his men? Or is that just sort of the kind of regulation that is reflexively enforced on a base? In the context of of Afghanistan, of being at a post, uh, especially a, coming in from a patrol where you just got shot up. Um, when you encounter that moment, that why didn't you guys shave moment, that why aren't you wearing your knee pads or your glasses? I encountered that moment many, many times. That 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 is a low point. But as uh, Sarah was very wise to point out, most of the soldiers just shake it off. That's what you learn to do. One of the craziest things you learn in the military, which seems to be true, is in the after-action review of Vietnam, there was this, a statistically significant correlation between soldiers not shaving and incidents of murder and fratricide. This is why the sergeants mm -hmm. majors say it. They don't say it because they've imagined a, a crazy scenario of me, uh, this me-lie scenario. It's because 
in the Vietnam War, people didn't shave, people used drugs, people drank. And somehow the, the statisticians and the economists at the Pentagon uh, in the 1970s decided that this was why. And that's why we don't get beer anymore in combat. And that's why we have to shave every day in combat, which is really annoying. It reminds me of the broken windows theory of policing, that uh, the idea that if you let the small infractions go, then, then you create a culture in which larger infractions are more likely to happen. Um, questions have been raised about that theory in, in the criminal in the criminology context, and, and I'm sure questions could be raised about it in a military context as well. But that's interesting that that's the uh, that's where that uh, officer was coming from when when he justified. In the other case as well, seeing the photographs that the Guardian photographer had taken and, and the men digging the hole were not properly in uniform because it's fucking hot out there and you're digging a hole. <laughs> yeah. uh, but apparently, no, you've got to still be wearing your uniform. I do think it's kind of a shocking theory of human nature, though, um, that underlies this assumption, like the idea that there's a continuum that like a lapse in discipline on this one end of the continuum. It's on the same spectrum as, oh, I lapsed in my dip discipline and shot up a room full of people. Like that just doesn't seem <laughs> to be um, something that you can connect. But I guess, uh, again, I have no knowledge of what it's like to be deployed. Part of it is that there's a, a, a unit when it's operating correctly, and there's a lot of bandwidth for a unit to operate correctly. Imagine a unit on a scale of 100%. 10% of the time, there's going to be really lousy leadership, and the unit's going to operate badly. 80% of the time, you'll get a mediocre leader, a subpar or above average leader, and the unit's going to operate just fine. And 10% of the time, the unit will have a great leader and the unit will vastly overperform and overachieve. Um, one of the ways in which you can tell that a, a unit is not well balanced is when one type of thing, one type of interpretation of the rules is overemphasized. So I can't say for sure, but maybe that's the type of situation where... Uh, the officers weren't taking as much responsibility as they should have. If, if ideally what you want is you want a sergeant major who is going to say, why are you not wearing your sunglasses? Why are you not shaved? Why is your uniform out of regulation? And then an officer who comes up and pats you on the shoulder and says, good job out there. I know you guys had a hard mm -hmm. day or vice versa. It can, but once somebody has to be good cop, somebody has to be bad cop. If everyone's being bad cop, then it just runs people down. So as I listen to this episode, and I've never been in the military, and, and most of my knowledge of the military comes from books and movies, um, but none of the circumstances that Bergdahl described would have been out of place in my picture of how the military operates. You've got a commanding officer who's an asshole, and you get into a situation where you're going to collect the parts of this vehicle and they're in danger and then they get into a firefight and it's incredibly dangerous and the command who sent them out there don't have a good plan and they don't know how they're supposed to bring this stuff back or how it's going to get fixed and the whole thing just seems like a clusterfuck and then you get back and, and your commanding officer is a dick and asks you why you haven't shaved. That is exactly what I imagine the military would be like. And if I signed up to, to be in the army and to go to Afghanistan, that is what I would be expecting to, to encounter when I got there. Um, Bo Bergdahl obviously was not expecting to encounter that. He was expecting 
to encounter something different. Is my picture of what I would be expecting, am I, is my picture been distorted by watching movies or, or has Bo Bergdahl's picture been distorted by watching movies? That's a great question. I, I, I would say that Bo Bergdahl's picture was distorted by reading books and watching movies. Uh, I, I think your picture of the military is very reasonable. And when you're there, the only thing that changes is you just become frustrated when you understand that it applies to you personally. That's the only thing it changes. And, and then you have periodic moments of delight when you, you take a step back and you realize, wow, a, an adult man just uh, said that I needed to shave. That's what, a, what an ostensibly foolish thing to have happened to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one thing that did come across about Bo um, in this episode, he's just he seemed like this intensely idealistic, naive and sensitive person, like someone who maybe was not psychologically outfitted for the situation that he found himself in. And it made me wonder, like, if it was the responsibility of the military to sort of habituate or to, to help people like that adjust? Or is that something that they should have done before they went overseas? I mean, is, is there a way to help people with that kind of personality succeed in the military? So the way in which the military traditionally evaluates for that type of personality is to put them through basic training. So depending on what type of soldier you are, if you're an infantryman, as Bergdahl was, you would go to or infantry since infantry is now open to females, which is great. Uh, So if you are infantry, then you would go through, I believe, a 15 week infantry course at Fort Benning, Georgia. And during that time, you're subjected to a lot of stress that you don't encounter again until you're in combat. And the stress I saw, I started my basic training platoon started off with 40 people and graduated, I believe, 32. So eight people, it turned out, just weren't cut out for that type of life. I think part of it is that, as was mentioned in this episode, the moment where Bergdahl is joining the military is a moment where they don't have enough people and they're kind of trying to push people through basic training. So it's possible that uh, it was just uh, the the wrong basic training platoon with the right drill sergeant who, for whatever reason... Um, shared characteristics with Bo Bergdahl, and Bo Bergdahl thought to himself, this is great. This is exactly the type of thing that I, I thought it would be, and the military will be like this, and that was, was certainly not the case. Adrian, did Bo Bergdahl in this episode remind you of any of the soldiers that you served with at all? I would say the soldier that Bo Bergdahl reminded me of most, which is very embarrassing, is probably myself. When I was in the military, I, I took a lot of things to heart, I thought that things should be one way, and when they weren't, I was very disappointed. And I would be very curious to hear from other veterans who are listening to the episodes uh, if, if they felt the same, if, because it is such an isolating experience to be in the military. And most of us do join up for, for a variety of reasons. You join the military and you think, uh, if, if you're not just joining for cynical, self-interested reasons, you're joining because of the country or your society or you want to protect your family on some level. That's what people say anyway. And it is a very it's it's shocking when you when you get into those situations and it's not about the war. It's about somebody's ego. It's not about going on patrol. It's not about helping the Afghans. It's this, that or the other. And over time, you learn that that's OK. That's just the way the world works. 
But the thing that I kept thinking about while listening to this episode is if I had been a little bit more like Bergdahl, would I have done what he did? My first deployment, not my second deployment, but my first deployment in Paktika province, I used to fantasize daily about leaving post and just going, just booking it. It was a ridiculous idea, so I didn't do it. But the fantasy was there. I had that dream. Makes sense. (laughs) Maybe it's the mountains. I, I, I doubt it was the mountains. Before we move on, a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash serial spoiler and browse the over 180,000 audio programs. Download a title for free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash serial spoiler. That's audible.com slash serial spoiler and get started today. Audible content includes more than 180,000 audio programs from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine and newspaper publishers, and business information providers. If you're interested in more American military intrigue, you might consider The Pentagon's Brain, an uncensored history of DARPA, America's top-secret military research agency, by Annie Jacobson, the true story of the Defense Department's most secret, most powerful, and most controversial military science R&D agency. Start your free trial today by going Going to audible.com slash serial spoiler. I was just wondering if we could talk a little bit about um, the coin methods in particular and sort of the handing out, the giving Afghan people uh, watercolors of of the terrain and, and grain and flour. It was really striking to hear soldiers talking about how they found that unfulfilling, unrewarding. They found it frustrating and they would rather be rooting out, hunting down the bad guys. Was that I mean, did you encounter people who were dissatisfied with those techniques? I did, but both of my deployments, although I didn't see a lot of uh, action my first deployment, I did see quite a bit of action my second deployment. And my first deployment, I was around many people who did see a lot of action. The hypothesis I have here with Bergdahl and his platoon is that if, if you have too much of one thing, in the infantry, maybe you get disappointed. I think people in the 173rd between 2007 and 2008 were in so many fights that if they were annoyed about handing things out, they were annoyed that they were giving things to the enemy. They weren't annoyed mm-hmm. that they were handing things out. And actually, I, I saw quite the opposite among both the soldiers and the officers of my first and second deployment. When you're in a fight, Every two or three days, a, a vicious fight of the type Bergdahl described in on the Omni Plateau. Handing things out is like the only thing that that keeps you centered as a human. Like generosity and compassion are what bring you home. You say, "Well, at, at least this old lady has got some wheat for tonight." And I just got in a horrible fight, but that's worth something. One of the things, one of the questions that this episode raised was whether counterinsurgency is even a workable. A doctrine, even a workable strategy, specifically for the U.S. Army at this point in history. Jason Dempsey, the the PhD, the scholar, um, he said, you know, the only way you can do this is to spend decades on it, and and we just don't have that kind of arrangement, and so we rotate soldiers through, and none of them ever really gets up to speed with it, uh, and and we're never going to make this work. And there was the implication in something Sarah Koenig said. She said, some people are saying that this is impossible. Meanwhile, the Army says, sure, we can do this. We just need more time and more money and more men. And, of course, 
the Army's institutional priorities are always going to be uh, to, to get more from the civilian leadership. And, and if counterinsurgency doctrine is the way to do that, then that's what they're going to use in their arguments. It's a very cynical attitude. And I remember in 2006 or whenever it was that David Petraeus took over in the, in Iraq, um, there was a lot more optimism and a lot more hope surrounding counterinsurgency doctrine, which 10 years later seems to mostly have, have been extirpated by events. What do you think of that cynical point of view? Do you have more optimism about counterinsurgency? I do, personally. My second deployment was a little bit strange in that we went up to, it was just one uh, one battalion of us that went up to the north, Kanduz province, which is right on the border of Tajikistan. And there was a, a German battalion of paratroopers there. So we were fighting with the German army, which was very strange. Uh, I got panzer support and called for close air support from the Luftwaffe, which I'm sure my grandfather would not have been pleased about. Um, but the Germans had a lot of money that they were pumping into Kanduz province, building roads, doing the, the handout part of coin very well. And they, what they weren't doing, because the German people have certain restrictions on fighting from some things that happened a long time ago, was fighting the Taliban. And that changed when we showed up. And we started taking it to the Taliban. We would fight them just about every day and wherever we could. And by the the end of this 11-month deployment that I was on, the Taliban had been almost entirely defeated in the province, so much so that we could drive anywhere. I would drive with my partners in the back of pickup trucks uh, with a couple of bodyguards. We would just go wherever. It was, it was an almost entirely safe province. And all of our intelligence confirmed that from top to bottom. And... I thought there and then that, you know, they've got a chance here. The thing they have to do now is they have to build and take responsibility of this golden chance they have. And then uh, a, a few months ago, we learned that Kanduz actually has been, it's now changing hands between the Taliban and the government. So they didn't take advantage of that. And I think I, while I believe in coin at a tactical level, I've seen it work and I know that it can work. Dempsey makes a really great point, which is that if you don't have the political willpower to just stay there and be there, then it's never going to go anywhere. Then the Afghan elder is going to walk back to his village and one year later or two years later or three years later, it's, it's going to be back to the Taliban. The Taliban will come back. And so politically, I guess we have to make some choices. Can the U.S. Army do coin? Yes, it can. But maybe America isn't really interested in doing coin. Or if coin requires a a large military presence for four decades or else all the gains that it makes will slip away within a year or two, uh, how effective a strategy is it really? Yeah, that's we we had that. You have to look at that and say, is Afghanistan worth it? Adrian Bonnenberger, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Real pleasure. All right. Uh, Just before we wrap up, Katie, any moments from this episode that stood out for you? Sure. I mean, there were the usual serial, artful turns of phrases. Um, and I actually think this was a uh, a guest uh, who referred to the grab assery prevalent on the camps. I also like the notion of the um, vehicles that could be Frankensteined together and apart. Uh, what about you? Were there uh, particular felicities of phrase or other moments that you liked? There was a 
a, a moment of, of Sarah Koenig's interviewing technique that, that I, I was struck by. Uh, there's a moment when she's talking to, to one of Bergdahl's platoon mates, uh, and, and he says, he's talking about when they were uh, on the Omna mission, and, and he says, we didn't have any cigarettes, and we didn't have any food, and, and we didn't have razors. And she says, oh, razors, is that a thing, really? Right, yeah. And, I, and, and he says, oh, yeah, razors, because you're supposed to be clean-shaven every day, and they have a little conversation about and I thought, oh, that's some good interviewing there. She picked up on this little detail, and now she's gotten a little bit more flavor out of him. Good job interviewing Sarah Koenig. No. Faux naivete. I mean, it was know, a good job interviewing. Total foreshadowing. Yeah, yeah, she was setting something up. She had already heard the Bergdahl tapes. She knew razors was a thing. The first thing you said was we had no razors. Yeah. Which to me would be like the last thing you would think about is like shaving <laughs> when you're in a situation like that. But is that a thing? Yeah. Sarah Koenig, thing, you sly um, fucks. Right. And I actually thought that that was a sort of similar strategy that they used at the Adnan uh, Redux episode where she sort of echoed the structure of season one where she would be on the phone with Adnan. This time she was on the phone with her producer, Dana Chivas, and it was this very faux, casual, freewheeling conversation like Dana saying, oh, well, in what way was uh, was it surprising to see Asia on the stands? Blah, blah, blah. And I was thinking they gamed this out. So um, how'd it go? It was, um, I, I found it, I found it fascinating. I found all of it fascinating. Um, yeah, like, who, like, who come on guys. But, uh, it was still very entertaining to listen to this, um, very elegantly orchestrated conversation. Much in the way that you elegantly orchestrated bringing together the two episodes that we heard today. Good job, Katie Waldman. <laughs> now we'd like to take a few minutes to discuss some feedback from listeners. If you'd like to contact us, you can always send us your thoughts and questions about Serial or our show via email to serialspoilerspecial at gmail.com, or you can record a voice memo on your phone and send it to that address. We got some interesting comments from a few of you about Season 2's shift to a bi-weekly schedule. In particular, Kathy, who describes herself as a loyal spoiler listener. Thank you for that, Kathy. She writes, I would like to add a point about the change in schedule and content of Serial that recently occurred. One thing you did not mention is a move away from dependence on the Mark Bull tapes. I think the addition of new characters, new perspectives, and a new storyline about the various official and unofficial players in the search for Bergdahl has improved the season quite a bit. I now look forward to more episodes, even if they are bi-weekly. We also heard from listener Marin, who pushed back against the idea that Bergdahl's story is less exciting than Adnan Syed's. Marin writes, I loved Serial's first season up to a point, but odd as it may seem, I think Bo Bergdahl's story is a much better subject for Sarah Koenig's agenda. If you want to explore different shades of the truth or do a contemplation about the nature of truth, you really shouldn't pick a murder as your subject. If there's one instance where there is an unambiguous factual truth, it's a murder case. Adnan Syed either did or did not kill his girlfriend. There really is no ambiguity about that. And that some people create their own version of the truth is just owed to the fact that they and we don't know all the facts. So that case wasn't really about ambiguity, but much more prosaic, about the frustration of unknown or buried facts. My enthusiasm therefore diminished quite a bit during the season. This time it might go in the opposite direction. Bergdahl's case didn't seem that tantalizing at the beginning, but he is legitimately viewed differently by different people who have been involved. All of these stories are true. They really are different shades of truth. While the second season lacks the goosebumps of a murder mystery, it gets much more to the point of Sarah Koenig's project of making something good out of the embarrassing realization that you're being suckered by all sides. I love this letter, especially because I think that um, it's not only, you know, how do we interpret 
the act of walking off the base uh, in the season, but also how do we interpret the commander's act of reprimanding the troops who took off their uniforms? How do we interpret all of these uh, things that we know happened overseas? Um, but how do we ascribe the correct motivations and what does that matter? So I think um, this is a very perceptive comment, not just about the general theme of the episode, but sort of the other the other subplots that are emerging, too. Of course, as we've discussed, lots of people are still dissatisfied with season two. And an email from listener Peter offers a provocative theory about today's release of the season one update episode. Peter writes, having read about yesterday's Adnan Syed hearing in the Baltimore Sun, I was thrilled to see this morning the serial season one update in my podcast queue. It was only 16 minutes, but it was everything I could have hoped for. The original theme music, Asia McLean, a nuanced discussion of courtroom strategy, Adnan not showing emotion, a feeling of impacting something in real time. Then my euphoric haze cleared, and I saw another serial episode in my queue, the latest from season two. And from the title, it looked like the most important episode of season two, Why Bo Walked Away. If there is any Bergdahl topic worthy of serial, and I'm not sure there is, then the reason behind his walking away from his post would be the only possible one. This season two has been adrift for several episodes. Asia McLean would never say she couldn't tell us about why she did something, unlike every person in Meanwhile in Tampa. The fact that Sarah Koenig decided to drop this episode on the same day she knew her fans would be completely focused on her season one update means that she sees the weakness in season two and is trying to distract us. What do you think, Katie? Uh, that is a wily conspiracy theory. I respect the intricate mind at work behind that conspiracy theory. I'm not sure I agree. <laughs> I, I, I also think that the, the posting, the scheduling of, of the posting of the first of the season one updates is probably down to the, the, the actual occurrence of the events in real time. That is the fact that the hearing took place over the past couple of days, uh, rather than that kind of um, conspiracy to distract us from the inadequacies of season two. Yeah. Um, but yes, um, Keep those responses coming to Serial Spoiler Special at gmail.com. And that's it for this episode. We'll be back in two weeks following the release of Episode 7 of Serial's second season. Thanks to our guest, Adrian Bonnenberger. Find more of his work at Wrathbearing Tree, a progressive intellectual salon focused on military and veterans' issues. Katie, thanks for being here with us today. Thanks, Gabe. The Slate Serial Spoiler Special is produced by Sam Dingman. We're a production of Slate's Panoply Network. Laura Mayer is our managing producer, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. Find us in iTunes and find more great Panoply shows at itunes.com slash panoply. <laughs>